And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today we are going to talk about the sacraments. And to help us to talk about this topic, we have invited Pastor Chris Gordon. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. It's great to be with you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, man. We're excited to have you. Yeah, it's good to, uh, I, I've seen your, your program, listened to it, so it's good, it's a privilege to be on it today. Hope oh, I can, thanks. Hope I can help. You could have asked a million different guys to do documents, <laughs> and they would have been a way better choice, but I'll, oh, I'll offer what I can. Oh man, no, we have high regard for you. I love Abounding Grace Radio, and actually, since I mentioned that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I've been a Reformed Christian uh, all my life. I grew up in a Reformed church. And um, really was converted at about 21 years of age, went up to Humboldt State to play basketball and uh, heard a pastor really preach the gospel. They were in a little non-denom Bible church and the entire church became a Reformed church. And uh, they didn't even know there was this thing out there called Reform. So they're going through the book of Romans and they get to chapter nine and they didn't know what to do with it, right? So uh, they, stu- they, they learned the uh, Reformed Doctrines of Grace, and I was attending college at that time and, and uh, heard the gospel of a pastor that labored so faithfully. And um, yeah, that was a real turning point in my life to want uh, to help others understand these glorious truths of Scripture that unfortunately in the American church are often eclipsed and not emphasized. Um, so that, that was something that I wanted to do. So um, went to seminary, uh, Westminster Seminary, California, 2001 to four. And then I pastored a church in, in Linden, Washington for, um, for eight years. And then I uh, received a call from Escondido United Reformed Church. And I've been down here in, uh, back in Westminster land in Escondido since 2012. So I've been here now eight years. So 16 years in pastoral ministry. And uh, I love to, to preach God's word. I love his people. And it's a, it's a great privilege to be able uh, to do this and, and thankful for the opportunity. Excellent. So you serve alongside Scott Clark, correct? Yeah. Um, in the church, that was one of the things I was scared about coming back to uh, to Escondido. I would sit out and look at Michael Horton and Scott Clark and Bob Godfrey. Oh, wow. I, there. <laughs> I thought, you know, and my wife told me to stop fearing men. And so I listened to her and I, I was fine. But uh, these were all my professors. So it was a little, it was a little intimidating at first to, uh, to come back. But yeah, they're, they're all... Uh, ordained ministers here in the Escondido URC. Uh, I have a co-pastor here, uh, Steve Donovan, and uh, there's other professors here. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity. I, I never thought I'd be ministering to those who were my teachers, but I'm, I'm glad that I'm used to do so. That's great. How big is your congregation? Uh, it's about 500. We'll see in COVID afterward, after this whole thing's done, you know, what the, what the numbers are, but, um, yeah, we're about 500, um, and uh, yeah, great congregation, really supportive and uh, loves the word and loves the gospel, so grateful to be here. And you guys just opened a new building before all this happened. Right, yeah, we just uh, just completed a building that sort of three-phase uh, project. Phase one was the new sanctuary. 
phase two and three are uh, renovation of the old one into a social hall and, and, uh, and a new uh, set of classrooms, new building for classrooms. So that's, uh, that's exciting for us. Uh, it's somewhat frustrating that, you know, we opened it up at the first of the year and within two months we couldn't be in it. So <laughs> this brand new building sitting there kind of empty, we've been able slowly to get back into it. But as you brothers know, uh, things have changed this past week. So now we're going to, we're going to do our first big tent revival. How about that? <laughs> okay. Preach out under a tent. <laughs> so I look wow. forward to it. Okay. So awesome. Thank you for that. So let's get into the topic. So I want to ask you, Chris, what is a sacrament? Can you please define it for me? Sure. Well, I always think uh, question answer 66 of the Heidelberg is so helpful uh, to define them because it, it doesn't give a, you can't get a better uh, definition than there are visible holy signs and seals that were instituted by God so that he might make us understand the gospel more clearly. I just think that's a wonderful wonderful statement, the promise of the gospel. So there, there are signs and seals that the Lord gives us uh, to, as, as Augustine called them and the reformers, a visible word to help us understand what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, his work on the cross, uh, his shed blood, the giving of his life, so that we might live. So the Lord gives us these signs and seals to signify these great realities of what Christ has accomplished for us. Great. So how does that contrast with, for instance, um, a Roman Catholic and their view of the sacraments? Well, great question. At, you know, at the time of the Reformation, this is what people would sit around and debate and discuss on Friday night till late in the night. Today, there's less interest in talk about the sacraments, uh, unfortunately, because what wonderful blessings that the Lord has given us. Um, but like with any good thing, um, any good thing in the scriptures that the Lord has given us, there come abuses, right? There come wrong views, faulty views, views that um, replace the work of Christ in some way and make it more about us. At the root of all faulty views is that sort of subtle, sometimes subtle, sometimes blatant attack on the gospel and what Jesus does outside of us where we in turn make it something that we do. But in the Roman Catholic view, uh, which is known as transubstantiation, that's a view where they actually believe the, um, the bread and the wine are changed, transubstantiated. They're changed into the actual um, body and blood of Christ so that you are actually with the mouth eating Christ. And that's, um, that's something that the Reformation um, you know, addressed. And I think question answer 82 of the Heidelberg says that really, really helpfully when it says the mass teaches that the living and the dead don't have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshiped. And then the, it goes on to say, that's a denial of the one sacrifice of Christ. So there, where it's clearly saying there is that that bodily presence of Christ actually is present because the elements have transformed into that body and blood. And then we are eating Christ that way through the mouth. And the reformers reacted against that and said, that's Heidelberg, you know, 80 says, um, that's a condemnable idolatry. So that <laughs> the early Reformed confessions were really strong on this. We're not quite as strong today, and there's been efforts to tone down that, that language. But uh, throughout history, it was believed that that is, that is idolatry to eat Christ that way since it's a one-time sacrifice offered, as Hebrews talks about. Okay. So thank you for that, Chris. So people often get freaked out by the term sacrament. You know, they think it's some kind of a mystical thing. You know, it's Roman Catholic. Um, but can you explain to how this um, view of the Lord's Supper and of baptism was actually recovered by the Protestant reformers? Right. I mean, I think it's, it's important to say that we have this need, obviously, as human beings. The Lord accommodated us with this and understood we have a need to see and touch and handle, <laughs> right? Because our religion is, is uh, the Christian faith is just that. It's, it's received by faith, all of these blessings. And the Lord knows our weakness. The Lord knows that we need, that we need to be able to see and touch and handle. So he instituted two sacraments for us to help us in our weakness. 
They're meant to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us. Everyone at some basic level has an understanding of this. I would argue that, that much of the modern uh, approach to worship, the, even the, uh, the entertainment-based worship, the sensory um, emphasis on, on worship, the sensual, all that is really exhibiting that need that we want something to be able to see and to touch and handle and experience right? We want to be able to experience our faith, right? So, um, th that, that shows, I think, in all the different expressions of worship today. What we don't do is listen to what the Lord put in place to be a blessing for us, and he instituted two visible signs and seals that are uh, meant to encourage and to help us and strengthen us as an appendix and confirmation of the word that's preached to us. The Reformation wanted to recover that from other abuses that had happened and other ways that the church really had become idolatrous uh, in trying to commune with the Lord. They wanted to get back to the, the, the simple basic truths of the two sacraments that were ordained that were meant from the beginning to help us and strengthen us and encourage us uh, in this life. And those two sacraments are baptism and and the Lord's Supper. So the Reformation, and that's why if you go through all the, the writings of the Reformation, they gave a lot of attention to this because they understood that the Lord had given us a great benefit in these two sacraments intended to be an aid and help to us uh, in our faith. And um, I think that's something that, that we need just as much today to think about. And I'm, I'm glad you brothers care to, to want to talk about these things because um, Unfortunately, the same problem exists in our day. We're, we're not only in need of reform, we're in need of recovering what these mean and why they, why they matter. <laughs> right? And right. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's so, Chris, this, it, goes, it goes then beyond a, a sacrament of remembrance then, right? Uh, it's a, and has it been said that it's a, a, a means of grace then, a sacri uh, the sacraments? So, therefore, the uh, like let's say the Baptist view, they strictly see the the ordinances as they call them as remembrances. So, um, and I'm not entirely sure as to how that applies to the Christian life um, uh, meaningfully. Uh, I guess you can look back on the sacrifice of Christ and ponder upon His sacrifice upon your life in the Baptist's uh, point of view, but within the Reformed position this is actually a means of grace that god has given to us to as a sign and seal as you said right is there any type of sacrifice infused into the sacraments in any way well i think i think you're raising a really good question i think i think you know it's important to say on the first issue you raised i'll try to get back to your last question but i think on the first issue you raised about remembrance you know there's there's sort of the zwinglian view uh, of the lord's supper uh, that basically what's happening in the sacrament is our act of remembering simply what the Lord has done for us. And so when it comes to Lord's Supper today, many Baptistic churches, that's, that's what they think of the sacrament. This is a sort of special time for us to remember what the Lord has done for us. I remember receiving years ago from a Baptist church in the mail, a personal communion packet. And uh, there it was. I could take it off in the corner in my house and have a special time with the Lord, remembering what the Lord uh, what the Lord has done for me. First, I want to say that the Bible does speak of the sacrament, uh, especially the Lord's Supper, as remembrance. Um, we are meditating and thinking about, surely embracing, and you know, the Puritans just talk about meditation all the time, of what Christ has done for us. But it's not only that. <laughs> That's the important thing to say. It's not only that. It's our whole view of what the sacraments are. In other words, are they actions that we are performing for God? Are they actions that we are doing to try to reach up to God to strengthen our own faith? Or are sacraments, as both you brothers have mentioned today, means of grace, which is fundamentally something different, that God is reaching down and doing something for us, right? So there's two different looks at that. In other words, do the sacraments, do, does the strengthening of my faith rest on me or is it something that God is providing as a means of grace to me? It's kind of like how we look at worship. There are certain acts that we do in worship that uh, are a response to the grace that we've received. But my act of singing 
really doesn't shoot up grace, does it? (laughs) God is giving us grace in his word to us. And what the sacraments are, are confirmations of that word from God to help increase our faith. So fundamentally, there's something that God is doing for us. That's why in baptism, you have the confusion that some think that when they're presenting their child, they're not going to baptize them because it's their dedication to God of their children, whereas our view is it's a holy sign and seal that is being administered that seals, uh, assures us, and uh, signifies what God does inwardly to wash away all of our sins, right? And the Holy Supper is a renewal of what God does for us to strengthen us and nourish our souls. So again, those are two fundamentally different things that are happening as we view the sacrament. Is it just me doing something or are they something primarily that God is doing? And that's why we say the latter, calling it a means of grace. Hope that answers your your question. Yes. I just wanted to follow up and quickly ask you to extrapolate more upon what we mean by means of grace. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, what do you mean by that? Does it mean that Christ infuses you with something, then all of a sudden you become more powerful in the spirit and you're able to obey more? I mean, what does that mean? Right. Yeah, I think it's important because I, I think sacraments, in, in relation to sacraments, there's always been the tendency to view them sort of magically. Um, that just through the, think of the Lord's Supper, just at the, the Roman Catholic view, ex opere operato, what that means is by the act done, I get what it signifies. I get it. It's not just the action. It's not a magical view that if I just partake, you know, that's why, you know, priests, if they drop a piece of the bread, they're, they're jumping down because they think they've dropped Christ and, um, and they're picking it up and, and they panic. The point is, it's not a magical partaking. And sometimes I think we can, we can fall into that danger, especially even with baptism. I think there have been some movements in Reformed theology that have said, well, if you, you know, through the mere act of water, all of the benefits of baptism are being conferred right? Justification, sanctification, everything through the mere act of water. And that's a magical view of the sacraments that we reject. Um, You know, we always talk about faith in relation to these things. (laughs) Talk about believing hearts in relation uh, to to the benefits that God gives. And and so when it comes to means of grace, we're, we're specifically talking about the special workings of the Spirit that God has specifically chosen uh, to work faith in our hearts and to um, to help us. Um, I remember somebody, uh, a pastor years ago said to me, they said, you know, you guys always put God in a box. You know, maybe you guys have heard that. You guys put God in a box all the time. You always put God in a box. And yeah, right. you always talk about the means of grace. And you put God in a box that way. And I turned around and I said, no, you do. Because you think God can't work through what are clearly to you foolish things. Hmm. And, and I think that's the issue. Sure, God can do whatever he wants to do, but the question is, what has he told us how he works? And he primarily works. He primarily has told us, and, and how he, he grants faith is through a word and sacrament ministry. And that's why Paul said, you know, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Um, you know, the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to the world, but it is the power of God to save those who believe. So we're talking about the specific means that God has chosen uh, to save people. And that's what we're, spe- we're, we're saying that, that, you know, God has given us in his word specific things and told us specific things uh, that he uses to bring people to faith. And that's, that's why we talk about word and sacrament ministry. We're pr- predominantly focused on what we call the means of grace. Great. So in other words, since we're visible so we're creatures who like visible and tangible things. God has used these things in the visible and tangible way because they're, they're um, visible and tangible signs of the gospel or presentations of the gospel, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that gets to the, the beginning, um, you know, of when I quoted a minute ago from, the, uh, from the, the Heidelberg of what it says so, so clearly about the nature of sacraments itself. And I know that maybe some of your listeners think, you know, catechism, sacraments, well, you guys are heavy into it. Um, th- this is why we have these things. <laughs> they, were all, they were always meant to help people 
understand what the scripture teaches on, on the, the, these, these terms and this language that is used so that people have a good understanding of it. And if there's anything we need in our day, it's a better understanding of these things. But, but again, what you said, Matt, is so important that they're holy signs and seals. A sign is something signifying a reality that the Lord must do. It's pointing to a greater reality, a visible word, a seal, his assurance, his power to accomplish what is promised. And it's instituted so that we would have our eyes fixed on Jesus. <laughs> what could be wrong about that, right? We need to understand the work of Christ more. And so that's exactly what these two sacraments accomplish. The sacrament of initiation into God's family is, is water that says, welcome to the family. You're in, you and your children. You're in my covenant arrangement. And then um, the sacrament of, of the Holy Supper is for weary, struggling sinners in this wilderness who are constantly doing the same stupid sins, who are constantly making the same mistakes and are constantly doing things that they now hate. And the supper says, God is for you. God loves you. Rest on his promises. As we'll talk about here, what the supper, what we're actually doing, what the spirit is doing by feeding us on the crucified body and shed blood of Christ. You sound really Catholic, man, by saying that. <laughs> I was going to so, say that. that. <laughs> People are like, "Is this a Catholic podcast? What is this?" But then you're going to have to make it, you're going to have to make the same accusation accusations towards Jesus. Then <laughs> I, I just preached John six, and I said, "Can you imagine standing there that day and hearing Jesus say, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll never live.'" I mean, they heard that and they said, "You're crazy." You, you, who can listen to this crazy man? We're out of here. And I think that is so interesting that Jesus used that language to press them on the union and the spiritual life that must flow from him to them by the power of the spirit. He's pressing them with that very truth in John 6 that the reformers then took and said, yeah, that, that applies to the supper. Mm -hmm. But in other words, that crucified body and shed blood. And, and again, if I may quote Heidelberg, Again, this is a Protestant document, not, not a Catholic document. <laughs> um, listen to this. As surely as I received, I received from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body, uh, body and poured out blood. That's Calvin's view right there of the sacrament. Uh -huh. um, that's Heidelberg, uh, you know, Lord's Day 2875. So what he's actually doing is what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is actually bridging the gap to the Savior who is seated in heaven physically. And we are feeding on the crucified body and shed blood by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls, uh, receiving all the benefits of Jesus. Um, again, that's not what the Roman Catholics believe. They believe you're actually eating transubstantiation, the actual body and blood of Christ. So that's, that's, that's important to say. Now, let's say the Baptist comes right back at you and he says, in the text, it says, do this in remembrance of me. But that's all it says. It's just a memorial. We're, we're remembering him because there's nothing else in the text that talks about it being a means of grace. Well, I would tell him he's wrong. <laughs> and I would say that go on and read, uh, you know, where it says in 1 Corinthians, uh, where he's dealing with all these problems with the supper and abuse with the supper. Do you not know that this is a participation? That word for participation is very important, that we are participating in the life of Christ by faith. And, um, uh, you know, so, so it, it's not just uh, when we think of, uh, the, the, the Reformed view of the Supper and the Biblical view of the Supper, we actually believe that what we need in this life is Christ's life poured into us by union. This is what Jesus was saying, unless you, have, don't, if you, unless you have my life, if you don't have my life, my body and crucified body and shed blood, if you don't have my life flowing into you, there's no life for you. you on your own, just remembering on your own, you stand alone. You need my life poured into you is what Jesus is constantly teaching. And this is what, what Paul is saying there to the Corinthians, that there's very, something very special that does happen um, when we partake by faith. Um, and it's something that, that we need, just like you can participate 
with real demons, he says mm-hmm. there too, um, by doing things you shouldn't be doing in the supper, right? So that participation is really important through via union of uh, with Christ. And that's something I think that we have to, um, to talk about. And that's why, again, 76 says, through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, notice it's through the Holy Spirit, not, not our mouth, <laughs> not Roman Catholic view our mouth. That's where people get all confused. What are you saying? No, it's through the Holy Spirit. We are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we live forever and are governed by one spirit and are members of, one, uh, of our body are by one soul as the members of uh, our body are by one soul. So, so again, there's that spiritual life union language that's used in connection with, with the supper. So Chris, uh, then going back to my uh, previous question in regards to the sacraments being a sacrifice of some kind, if any, uh, so we, we do understand it to be a form of remembrance because it does say do this in remembrance of me. But like you said, it's a partaking of Christ in that union that Christians have with him. So what about the sacrificial aspect of the sacraments? Is there any, and how does, how does that apply? Right. So we, we believe that there's one sacrifice made once for all, right? There's not a repeating of the sacrifice that, that Rome teaches. And we believe that the body of Christ is localized in heaven, um, you know, we don't believe that body is coming down in some ways, you know, hyper physical, like the Lutherans would say, but um, nor nor are we just saying it's remembrance, even though remembrance is important. I I, I don't, we don't ever want to just overreact. You don't ever want to be just overreactionary to somebody and miss the good that they are saying there. Remembrance is important. Meditating and thinking and believing and prayerfully praising God for what Christ has done is, is part of a glorious response to the gospel. (laughs) And that's something that we should be constantly doing. Um, But when we're talking about participation, um, this fellowship and participation, we're really thinking about what the Holy Spirit does to bridge the gap. So that's something like Ephesians says, we can be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How's that possible? same way. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's somebody come along and say, how's that possible? You're not seated with Christ in the heavens. I'm right here. I'm not seated right. with Christ in the heavenlies. Yes, I am. That's what Ephesians 2 says. How is that possible? Via my union with Christ, via the participation that I have in him. I am so secure in him because he's there. I'm there. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Very insightful. Thank you. Yeah, there's so much to, to talk about with regard to this, and I feel like I'm dominating the conversation. So No, man, keep on going. Preach it. Preach it, brother. <laughs> no, that those are very helpful things. Um, what we're talking about, the remembrance view or, or the memorial view, which I think was brought about by Zwingli, I think he emphasized that, correct? Um, our Reformed Baptist brothers would believe it's a means of grace. I've heard this from many Reformed Baptist brothers, but they would say it's not a sacrament. So what would they say, Chris? Well, so, so say that say that again, Matt. So you, the, I, I missed, maybe I misunderstood. Okay, so, so they do believe it's a means of grace. Let me just say what they, what they say. So they will say we want to call it an ordinance rather than a sacrament. Right. So why would they do that? Yeah, and again, I think that gets to, you know, um, the fundamental nature of a sacrament itself. Uh, it being a sign and seal of who doing what <laughs> is mm-hmm. the question, right? Who's sign and who's seal? And, and, and of what is it signifying and of what is, what is being sealed? Um, and, and so I think, I think to be fair, um, that there's been a lot of reaction to sort of abusive, hypocritical Christianity of people who just say the creed, of people who come in and and pop the sacrament and live a completely contrary way to everything that their faith is about. We've seen so much of that in Christianity. Sure. That I think you could see why Zwingli would react in many ways to the Roman Catholic view, the opposite extreme, right? 
And Zwingli would say these things, just like we have that problem today. Um, we're tired of that. We're all into today authenticity. We want an authentic faith. And so, you know, I think, I think that kind of thing and growth and rank hypocrisy has, has hurt this. Um, and, and so you can understand that reaction to say, you know, to get rid of that because, it, well, if that's what you're saying and you're living in a completely different way, um, I'm, I'm going to distance myself as far from that as possible because what a terrible thing, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, so I think that's, that's a, a fair critique. Um, if we're going to go out and live like antinomians, you know, when we, when we say these things, you could see why some would react. But nonetheless, that doesn't, that doesn't um, give us the right to undermine what is the intention of God in the nature of a sacrament. What do we say a sacrament is? A sign and a seal, but it's also an, it's an appendage, a confirmation of the word. That's really important. So you asked about magical earlier. Um, we can't just take the sacraments apart from the word. Nobody believes that. But, um, but, but what do we say? We take the word, right? And, and we can have the word without the sacrament. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But my, my point is, is that, is that the sacraments are meant to confirm the word that is preached and the word that is spoken so that when received by faith, the benefit that is signified is something that we receive. Hmm. And that, I think, is, is, is important. So just like we would say, you know, um, with justification, sanctification, somebody who's truly justified is going to be sanctified in the course of their life. And somebody who has heard the word and received the sacrament by faith is going to take that faith seriously. Will they stumble, stumble and sin? Will they, will they continue to fall? Absolutely. That's why we need the sacrament. It's not Amen. saying it's for perfect people, yeah. but it is saying that it's, it is something that God has given to nourish and strengthen and help us through this life. And uh, it's something that rests on his promises and his work his gospel and the savior he has sent by the power of the Holy spirit and doesn't rest on you. And therein lies the fundamental difference. We'll get into this more, but I wanted to bring up baptism and Onig and I, and some other friends were talking about this the other night. And I was talking to him to them about my view of baptism um, then and now. And before when I viewed baptism, of course, I thought it represented, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and being, being buried with him, which, of course, it does. But I always thought it was about, you know, my commitment towards him. And often when we see a baptism in modern evangelicalism, we see that the person gives us big testimony before they go down in the water, right? And so this is my commitment. This is my testimony, et cetera, et cetera. But now the way I view it is it's his stamp on me that God is providentially doing this through a human being and stamping me as his covenant child. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and I guess, you know, it, it gets into who exactly we're talking about. Are we talking about those who later in life, by people in my church who later in life have come to faith and uh, they lived a pretty notoriously wicked life? And uh, the way that they came into the kingdom is much like the way that we see in Acts of many people who've never heard the gospel, right? Um, they heard the gospel preached to them. They were convicted of their sins. They believed the gospel, and then they were baptized, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's going to come with a different kind of experience, if you will, um, than those who are raised in households of faith. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that those raised in households of faith won't have, have that time where they're sincerely convicted of their sin and then profess their faith, right? But my point is, is that somebody who's come out of sheer paganism or somebody who's lived a notoriously wicked life and become saved, that's going to be a pretty dramatic experience. And they're going to have a pretty powerful testimony. And what a beautiful thing. But that act of baptism is not (laughs) uh, their testimony. That act of baptism is the testimony about another who did something for them. Right. Yes. And that's really important to say. We all love to have testimony time. And I, I remember years ago, the Lutheran Hour, I think it was, it was a program by Don Matsett. 
And, you know, he would always, uh, he would have testimony time and everyone would call in and talk about, you know, their big toe being healed and everything by the book. <laughs> and, and then, and then uh, he says, okay, I've got, I've got one qualification day today for testimony time. One qualification for you. You can give your testimony, but you can never mention yourself. And nobody called. <laughs> right? And how would we do that? We would talk a lot about Jesus, wouldn't we? Instead of, instead of me. And I think that, that gets to the essence and nature of what the sacrament's all about. It's a sign and seal of what Jesus has done. In AD 30, the month of Nisan, about the sixth hour of the day, somebody said it was finished. His name is Jesus. And he actually atoned for my sins. His blood was shed. He lived a perfect life for me. And on the merits of that death, uh, all of that is applied to me so that the washing that I need of all my sins is accomplished through that life, not my life, not my testimony, <laughs> right? So that's really important. Now, getting back to the other issue then would be the, the person raised in the faith who says, well, I've always believed in Jesus. I've always known Jesus. And, and um, the Lord has always commanded that those who have believing parents should receive the sign. Some people, you know, have struggled with that, but you know, I believe that. I believe the scriptures teach that. That was the view of the Reformation. And um, as they receive that sign, as Calvin says, it's a, it's a sign unto future repentance and faith. Hmm. So just as Jesus said, you know, when the infants were brought to him and carried to him and the disciples got mad, get them away. He said, no, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Calvin says, that's why we give them the sign of the kingdom of heaven. Why is, is, does, if such belongs to the kingdom of heaven, these little infants, would we deny them the sign of that kingdom? Mm -hmm. And that sign is important because it signifies the work of Christ for them too, even though they don't know their sinners, even though they were born and don't understand these things, they still have the sin of Adam and they still can die. They need a savior too. Amen. That, so, so the point is, is in both scenarios, it's all Jesus's work. Right. All that work. And that's what the sign and the seal is signifying the washing that all of us need in this life. The act of baptism, the water itself does not wash away sins. Really important to say. Amen. Jesus does by the power of the spirit. So, okay. Before we get further into baptism, I think Onik had a question in regard to the Lord's supper. Right. Going back to your point about the person who lives a notorious life. Uh, so in, in, respect to communion uh, paul tells us in first corinthians 11 right not to take it up uh, with an in an unworthy manner uh, what does he mean there what what is that unworthy manner about right that's that's really important i think um since you guys had me in the heidelberg today i was meditating on this so i hope i hope it's okay to quote these and, and you can cut them out if you want them in there no right? no no of course hey what about what about meditating on scripture man <laughs> get rid of these catechisms hey you should see all the proof <laughs> well and this is this is taken right out of first corinthians um 10 11 so but who should come to the table and it says those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins and who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So there's, there's your concern. That's a direct quote out of, out of 1 Corinthians. And what he's saying there is, is there's, there's, there's those who are living in complete hypocrisy, those who do not believe, those who uh, aren't discerning the body and blood, and, and we know these people today who say, you know, I can live any way I want. I can do whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter. Jesus died for me. That's the very kind of invitation of judgment that Paul is talking about here. Notice the, the contrary spirit here of somebody who's truly communing. What is it? Humility. They recognize their sin, how much they need Jesus. Um, they realize that he's done everything for them. And that as they're struggling with their sins and as they're, as they're um, failing, uh, they're coming to him and they, they look at his suffering and his death for their confidence and ask the Lord constantly to lead a better life. That's their desire. Those are, that's proper communing. So what Paul is doing there in 1 Corinthians is saying, he's separating sort of the wheat from the, from the tares and saying, those who are living this way, you're not, you are not discerning the body and the blood. You're not you have no sort of care for what Jesus actually went through 
to pay for sins. You're running right, running that right underfoot. And he's saying that invites judgment. And I think that's, that's something that we have to, we have to say. Um, but it's not for, as we always say in our, when we read the Lord's Supper, we have a little form we read. It's, it's not for those who are broken and contrite in heart and who, who are really struggling with their sins. This is what the supper, this is who the supper's for, for struggling sinners, not for, not for the hypocrites who think they're righteous and can trample it underfoot, right? Hmm. Yeah, oftentimes we have we feel like we have to clean ourselves up before we come to the Lord's Supper. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, don't don't come then. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, is you're a mess, and that's why you need the supper. Uh, Amen. I mean, we, we just struggle constantly, um, and it's for our sanctification, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah amen. Okay, so we were talking about baptism. We kind of got into it, but let's let's go further into this. Um, why don't you give us a definition of baptism, um, biblical a biblical definition, and as it relates to Reformed confessions and creeds, and also a, a, a quick defense of it. I mean, this can be a long and exhaustive topic, obviously. But Did you say what, infant or just baptism itself? Um, well, actually, let's just do baptism and infant baptism, because there, there, we do believe um, in adult and infant baptism as Reformed Christians. Right. So, so baptism is a is a sign of initiation, like I said earlier, into the family uh, of God. And what God did was give an outward sign of identification, a sign and a seal of washing. It's very simple. We can explain this to our kids. My kids like mud and they'll run around and they'll roll around in mud. And you know what? That's a lot like what my life is like. I like mud too. It's called sin, right? <laughs> and, um, and what we need is a washing. But just like when we roll around in actual mud, you know, we need to go to the shower and we need to take a bath and water washes away all that filth. What needs to happen on the inside is we need a washing away of all our soul's impurity. Um, that's exactly what needs to happen on the inside. Bible calls it the washing of regeneration. This is what Jesus was, was talking about. What the sacrament signifies is what he explained to Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You need regeneration. You need new life. You need to be washed by, by, uh, by the Spirit. And that's the reality that the sign signifies. So, so, so in other words, signs tell us of an invisible grace that is needed and something that we can accomplish. So that out, he gives us an outward in, um, element of water to signify the washing internally that we need away of all of our sins. And that's what, that's what the baptism is telling us. There's a new identification for you. You mentioned earlier, Matt, you know, um, we were buried with Christ through baptism, raised from the dead. All of that signifying what Christ's death has accomplished for us and resurrection. And that's what the sacrament signifies. Okay. New identity. New, new identity in Christ. Excellent. Okay, does, so uh, now... Go ahead. Right. I'm sorry. Uh, so does that understanding... I mean, that goes back in, uh, into Abraham, right? The covenant with Abraham which is a covenant of promise as I understand it. And then that covenant is then fulfilled in the, in the covenant, uh, the new covenant with Christ. Right. So, so that, that, that promise is then passed down and fulfilled in Christ where the, where salvation is efficacious is made. Um, that's how I understand it. That that's how I've been learning it. Sure. You know, we talk about old and new. Old is in relation to Moses. New, new is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. So when, when we, we're talking about the old covenant, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3, he's looking at Moses, the giving of the law in Sinai, and he's looking at that particular phenomenon of the law and the old covenant. Um, but just as Paul would say in Galatians, that doesn't annul the covenant that came beforehand <laughs> just because the law was given, it doesn't annul this awesome, beautiful, powerful, glorious arrangement that came before 
Sinai. And we see that materialize and develop, obviously, in the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel announcement, Genesis 3. And we see this break open as God raises up this figure and makes all these glorious promises to him and says, you're going to be the father of many nations, many Gentiles, who now were the recipients of that. He had always intended that, and he said, the promise is to you and to your children. What promise? Well, Paul understood the promise to be the same promise, the promise of Christ, the promise of the seed, the promise of the gospel that is received by faith. That's why he calls circumcision a sign and a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith, Romans 4. So, so, So if circumcision is that which comes by faith, pointing to Jesus, what, we've, what we understand is that the signs are by necessity replaced because it would be wrong, just like Rome does with the supper, to, to continue to institute a blood sign. There's no more shedding of blood. That's done, right? So by necessity, the sign changes to that of, of washing and water. And, and upon the same principle and same promise made to Abraham, to you and your children who received this by faith, and so God always told Abraham to include his children in that same promise and same covenant arrangement um, um, because he's a gracious God. And I know, I know some of our brothers and sisters have struggled with that uh, in, in, you know, and said, well, where in the New Testament do you see you know, um, infants being baptized everywhere? <laughs> that's what I say. That's what household baptism is all about. That's that's what Paul, yeah. Peter said in Acts two. The promises to you and your children. It's the same promise made to Abraham, and um, and and for a Jew to now remove the child from the covenant arrangement would need a specific command to not do it. You see, and that's really important. Uh, it would be assumed that children were always, and that's what I, the big the big um, argument I've always made is that the new covenant in fulfillment to Abraham is supposed to be wider and more gracious and includes all the nations. Oh, but now we ax off the babies. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not quite as wide and gracious, is it? <laughs> that's actually right. got a lot more narrow because that's a lot of people he just ah. axed out. Right. Yeah. So anyways, uh, there's well, a lot. Chris, uh, I mean, I'm playing the other advocate here. So uh, it says, believe, uh, excuse me, repent and be baptized, right? How does a child repent? And that's that's where I go back to Abraham and say, can you imagine that conversation with uh, if Abraham were the Baptist at that time? God, if if the Lord, if um, circumcision is a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith, why would I give that to my infant eight days old? There's no argument that a Baptist could make, right, today, against infant baptism that Abraham could not have made against infant circumcision. None. Because if it is a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith, then it should have been denied because Abraham believed God and was justified, right? So the point is, is that it's not the act of baptism that saves to begin with. It's the fact that our children are sinners and that God includes them in in that covenant arrangement, even though they don't know yet that they are sinners or have the ability to repent and believe. And that's why the Reformation always believed it was a baptism unto a future repentance and faith. That's why profession of faith is so important. But Chris, the new covenant is founded on better promises. Jeremiah 31, why does Paul go to such great lengths in Hebrews 8 to quote all of Jeremiah 31? That's the argument, right? Against pedo baptism. Why would he do so? Yeah, I've never understood that argument. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense to me because he's saying there um, the same thing. I will remember your sins no more. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that Hebrews 8 inclusion of Jeremiah 31 is telling us that everything that the time Abraham anticipated when the fullness of the nations would come in has come. And so mm-hmm. I'm still struggling with why we would ever remove those promises to, um, to children. And that's why, you know, yeah, go ahead. Right. I think the crux of the argument comes down to what you were getting at earlier. I mean, I think you can definitely go to those individual texts and argue, right, for our position. I think it's, I think it's very strong, and I think it's the position of the, the church throughout redemptive history. But it comes down to, again, your view of the covenants, the Mosaic versus the Abrahamic. 
and that we are not under the Mosaic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are of one substance. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what totally convinced me, um, listening to people like Dr. John Fonville, and then it clenched it with me. Uh, I got convinced of it with uh, Scott Clark, listening to his series. And then, uh, he said, be, then you can be convinced by Galatians 3, too, that says the same promises. <laughs> or Ephesians yes, 3. right. The same promises made to Abraham belong to us. And that's, that just sealed the deal for me on it. Same promises, Paul says. Same it's very, it, it's true. It's funny because Scott Clark kept on saying in the series before he got to, you know, the conclusion of the argument, he says, remember, you have to take off your Moses mask. <laughs> and I actually told him that, that I, I took off my Moses mask. And I, I knew what he was getting at when he started giving the defense of the Abrahamic covenant and how it is of one substance with the new covenant. It's not just deleted away because you have people in the dispensational camps and also, I mean, you have it in the reform camps, obviously with Baptists, but also in new covenant camps where they just take all the covenants together and they just ax them. And all of a sudden you're just left with the new covenant, right? So it's just the kind of deletes or depletes all of past redemptive history. Absolutely. It's to see continuity and to see the categories, to be able to put the whole scripture together. It's one big plan. <laughs> it's not divided up as classic dispensationalism does. It's one plan, one fulfillment plan, all centered on the work of Christ that always intended to include all the nations and Jew and Gentile together as one people. And yep. when you understand that, when the middle wall of separation has been torn down and it's one people together now, uh, that the same promises made to Abraham, that we actually have the stars of heaven and the sand of seashore actually being fulfilled before our eyes, so that Revelation 7 shows us a multitude no man can number. He's looking at the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Amen. In glory. So it's it, that, no, that the number no man can number is Genesis 7, 15 through 17. And Paul does refer to the church as uh, the ecclesia in the wilderness back in the Old Covenant. Right, right. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, these are important truths, uh, definitely. Um, they definitely. I think it's a, I, may I say one more thing, Matt? And sure. I think, I, I think uh, my experience as a pastor is, you know, these things are difficult when you've been, depending on your upbringing, depending on what you've been programmed with, depending on how you've been taught many years, uh, depending on, you know, your church background. Uh, these things, these things can be difficult to grasp, and we need to be really patient with people. Amen. And we need to be not uh, ramming and cramming these things down people's throats. In other words, we need to exhibit the very grace we say we believe and Amen. help people. And I, I'm not so yeah. sure we've always been good at that. Uh, I think that you know we get rather feisty and ready to fight and ready to throw down and, you know, bear down on our neighbor on these things. And then we lose them because, you know, really, you believe in the covenant of what grace? Really? I don't, I don't know what that means in the way you behave. So, you know, I, I, I guess what I want to say is it's important that we exhibit that. And, you know, I've, all, I've been guilty in my own life of, of being too zealous for these things and not being patient with people. And um, this is kind of a big hurdle for people depending on your, the way you've been trained. This is kind of the last hurdle for people on the baptism issue, especially when you have, you know, you have people saying that, you know, this is, this is a holdout, you know, from Rome. And I don't believe, any, <laughs> I don't believe that anything Rome teaches on these things. Uh, we don't have the same view across the board. It's, it, you know. Yeah, that, that's unfair because Rome doesn't teach, they teach an efficacious baptism. Yeah, they, they believe they believe that through baptism, original sins are removed. I well, mean, you know. look, the fact is, is that you can use that argument, you know, any which way you want, but it doesn't hold up because I mean, there's many things actually that Rome does hold for that are orthodox besides those things. For the triune God, so we because Rome holds it, do we throw out the Trinity? <laughs> no, I was just going to say that. I mean, right. in terms of. They say they say the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, Rome does get one. I don't like to give them credit for much, unfortunately, but they do get original sin, and that's the reason why they do believe in baptismal regeneration. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But, the, the, but, 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 but all of, is a little is a, a little messed up. But <laughs> I'm sorry, they're what? 
their view, oh, of, the their fall. view of oh sure but it's funny I mean, a lot of evangelicals really don't believe in original sin. They believe you become a sinner the first time you sin. They don't believe it's our, our nature, our constitution. And doesn't that get really to the, the heart of what we're talking about today with regard to why sacraments have to be a work of the Lord and what, what he's teaching us through them of the gospel? I mean, how bad is the problem? If you never have that starting point, you know, you're, you're going to end up in all different places. And, um, we don't believe like Pelagius. We don't believe sin is just by imitation. You know, mm-hmm. we, today the hot button topic is systemic issues, right? Systemic issues. And surely things can get into systems. Who, who denies that? If, if you have sin in the heart, it can filter in systems. But systemic problems are not the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is the human heart. Right? Yep. And, yep. and at the fall, the human heart became desperately wicked. And that is propagated. A sinful nature is propagated at conception to all of us. Like I tell, you know, you you guys know this, if you have children, you don't have to teach them to be bad. They are. (laughs) They know how to sin. They know what to do. And uh, I have to work really hard to curb all that, not to teach them, you know, um, sinful ways. Yeah, my kids were so good, we had to add a how to be bad class in our homeschooling. (laughs) (laughs) When Onik was baptized, they had to dunk him three times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, these are those those are great words, Chris. I appreciate your pastoral point of view on this that we do need to be patient and gracious with these things. I mean, look, I've only been a pedo baptist for about a year now, maybe a little over. Um and that was actually the last thing for me. Um they are difficult truths to come by. You're right, we do have presuppositions and backgrounds that we bring into it. And we do have to be cognizant of that. Right. Exactly. And to remember that it's not, you know, as much as we have this great view of the sacraments of the Lord's work, it's not the sacraments themselves that are saving us. It's Christ's work <laughs> applied yeah, by the Spirit. And it's not, it's not the acts themselves. It's not the water hitting the forehead. It's not the, the bread touching the tongue. Um, these are all signifying realities of everything Christ has accomplished. And that's really important to say. Yeah, absolutely. So Chris, knowing, knowing all this about the sacraments, about the nature of the sacraments, I mean, how is that practical in our lives? How does that aid in our sanctification? Yeah. What a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that I would love when people, pastor, how, how can I grow as a Christian? And what we kind of expect is the patent answer. And again, I think we overreact to it. I know, you know, a lot of people coming out of evangelicalism that come into reform camps then react to the Bible reading and prayer plan, right? And they get pretty irritated with people who lay the new law of here's how, here's how, what your sanctification is all about is Bible reading and prayer now personally. And I, I used to get on that mentality quite a bit, but, um, I do think those are very important for sanctification. I do. I, I believe we need to pray. <laughs> I think we need to read our Bibles. That's that's wonderful gifts that the Lord has given us and avenues to grow. And uh, we shouldn't, but we shouldn't make it a legalistic pounding on people that if they're not doing these things, they're somehow inferior to the holy Christians who do it more. But anyways, that's another discussion. I would love to hear people say, I tend to the means of grace. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't, I don't hear people, if you ask people, what do I need to do to improve as a Christian? Almost across the board, all answers will be, you know, uh, well, what, trying to figure out what I personally need to do in my life on my own. We have to get away from an individualistic mindset. We're never Christians alone in this life. God never designed us to do this alone. And we endlessly try to do this alone. And I would love to see and help people to see that there is real strength. There's real power. There's real nourishing. There's real help for us through the ministry of the church. That's not a, that's not a taboo thing to say. (laughs) Again, you know, everyone's had so, we're so against institutions today and structures and that's whole society right now. We're in, we're in, we're in a tearing down mode of all institutions. And Christianity is one of those institutions that's soon to be really attacked that way. 
There's going to be a tearing down of the institution. And that'll be one of the worst things for people's sanctification. Because why God gave the church, why God gave, he inspired his word so that the, the, the church would preach that word in season, out of season, and administer the sacraments to really weary, struggling people to keep them and uphold them. If the bread and the wine signify Christ's life, think about the beauty then, Onig, of, as you asked, the beauty of being taught as, as the manna in the wilderness sustained Israel. You know, obviously Jesus says they died in the wilderness, but the point is, is the intention of that was to teach them about the Lord's provision of the true bread from heaven. The supper is signifying to us the Lord's power to uphold us, to keep us, to feed us, to uphold us through this life and to bring us home. I need that all the time. I need that. I need that nourishment and participation in that life all the time. And that's a great blessing and benefit that the Lord has given to us. So I think if people can sort of reprogram and retrain their minds to say, not first and foremost, what do I need to do? But what has God put in place for me? What has God done for me to help me in that, in my sanctification? We might see some better results. But I think we need to be realistic about sanctification. Mm -hmm. This is where I also think Christians get sideways. As the Heidelberg says, even the holiest in this life only make a small beginning in this new obedience. So if that's true, what about the least holy in this life? Hmm. So if the, we need to be careful that the levels of sanctification, of my level of sanctification, I'm not pushing on Oneg and Matt. Of course you should be as sanctified as me, of course. you know. That's <laughs> but the, uh, the reality is, is we need to be careful of, of not making sanctification justification again. Yeah, absolutely. And it happens and so a lot. That it happens a lot. And and that's where I think remembering and 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 reprogramming our minds to to really focus on the word and sacrament and how the Lord has blessed us that way and helped us is important for for retraining Christians again in these things. That will it will help them. There is a beginning. It may not be as much as we want. That comes in the resurrection, but there is a beginning, and that's important to say. Amen. So thank you. So there's an important distinction that you made, a distinction that you made where the sacraments um, are the primary means of grace and reading your Bible and all that is great, but we, we, can't, for, we can't forget that the sacraments are the primary means of grace. Right. There's, there's primary, and we would even say that a secondary, I, I did an article for Ligonier not too long ago, and they asked me to do prayers as a means of grace. And I put in there uh, a statement that, you know, we believe narrowly in the means of grace and word and sacrament. More broadly, some of the Reformed confessions, like the Westminster, talks about prayer as a means of grace. And, and um, while we may not be as comfortable with that language in the continental tradition, there's two kind of Reformed traditions, Presbyterian and Continental. The Presbyterians speak a lot more frequently about prayer as a means of grace. I think it's important to distinguish, you said, primary um, I think narrow, broader distinction is helpful in that regard. Yeah. There was a interview that we did with uh, John Moffat from Theocast. We talked about these things. He did a really good job because, like you were talking about before reading your Bible and all that, we get sometimes we get caught up in, you know, spiritual disciplines where it's almost like a sacrament itself, you know, where if you don't do these things, then, you know, there's there's a problem. There's something wrong with you. Um, like you said, I think you should read your Bible. You know, I think you should pray. I think these are indicative marks of a Christian. I really do. But but again, we need to focus on getting back to the central focus, which is the, the primary means of grace and being part of, of the local church, the body of Christ. And there is no way you can grow being a Lone Ranger Christian. We're, we're not only saved... We're not only saved um, in, in, by our union with Christ, but we also were engrafted into a larger body of believers. Exactly. Um, I mean, that, that's, it's really important to, to emphasize, emphasize that today. And, um, you know, we can't, like you said, we can't do it alone, but I think it, it's just that why have church if it's not spiritually beneficial? If God didn't put it in place in our life to be beneficial to us. It's meant to be highly beneficial to us. The, 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 the gathering together of the saints, the, the feeding on the word, the feeding on Christ, the, the receiving of the sacraments, the being able to present an offering, sing to the Lord. What a, what a, what a blessing. 
you know, and what a way for helping us through this life as we worship the Lord. So yeah, absolutely. Amen. Before we get going, can you please give us the gospel? I can give you the gospel. Um, the gospel is the shedding of Christ's blood for us. The righteous life that he lives, he came here um, and he lived a perfectly righteous life, keeping every bit of the law in our place. Uh, so careful the whole way. He who be- he knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And keeping uh, a perfect record for us, putting himself under the law, think about that in the fullness of time, um, he came under the law to redeem us from its curse. He went knowing he had to go and pay the ultimate penalty for us. He went and laid down his life, taking on all of our sins, becoming the sacrifice, becoming everything the Old Testament looked to, looked forward to, all the sacrificial system, everything that was intended to show forth Christ was all fulfilled in AD 30. When he walked up on Golgotha and he cried out and said, it is finished and breathed his last. Uh, atonement was made, sacrifice was made, and all those given uh, to him by the Father, every last one of their sins, past, present, and future, are, are forgiven. And because of his righteous life, we have life. And therefore, we stand in the judgment because he, ju- he was judged for us. Beautiful. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much. That is indeed good news. Yes. Okay. So um, before we let you go, where can people reach you and um, sure email or your website? Yeah. Um, the radio program that we, uh, we have, um, I've, the Lord's opened a great door. I'm able to broadcast throughout the continent of Africa. And I, I just, I giddy about that. I just think that's a wonderful opportunity out of Zambia um, and out the U.S. Wow. and Canada. You can go to agradio.org. Um, it's kind of a big project. We try to keep up the blog, but don't do as well as that. And we have a program there that we try to do too. So we have a, a daily radio program that airs. We really want to help people get back to understanding the scriptures. So I like to, to go through books of the Bible. And so agradio.org. And of course, I pastor at the Escondido United Reformed Church, escondidourc.org. And I would advise our listeners to listen to Abounding Grace Radio. It's one of my favorite shows to listen to. I get fed by it all the time. You'll learn a lot. It's not only theologically astute, but it's practical as well. And um, Onik, where can people reach us? They can reach us by email at info at bttrmin.org or back to the reformation at gmail.com. They can listen in on the podcast through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and we're now on YouTube. Yep. Yep, Onig's been doing a really good job. That's hard work getting those videos up there. Yeah, I, I'm constantly having to correct your uh, what you say. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're going to have to correct, and, correct a lot of what I say. I'm sure. And actually, they're just audio <laughs> files. They're audio files up on YouTube, so no one has to look at Onig, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have a face for radio. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you've been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. We hope you join us next time for another episode. See ya.